This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. I'm going out of order. Winkler, Caleb, Zach. Yeah, you like that? I normally go in one area. But before we get into Matthew 15, we need to play a game. It's called How Many Lozenges? Uh, Because right now, in front of Winkler, I currently, if my eyes are okay, I see six Ricolas. I don't even know what flavor those are, but I'm pretty sure there were 17 before the first recording yeah, it's today. Extreme. What exactly is happening? Uh, I got I got sick. I got I got the COVID. Right. Well, I, did, I didn't think that ago. was survivable. Uh, I, no, well, I've, I've been reliably informed. I've been resurrected. Kyle. Okay, uh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. Does anybody else remember the commercial, the Ricola commercial? Ricola. Oh, yeah. yeah. I hate how effective that was. That's no. the only thing I can think about. It's like the best jingle that's not a jingle of all time. But this uh, this is my fourth resurrection from COVID. Uh, and Good so grief. Stop know. licking people in public. Like, what in the I, world? You know what? Yeah, I mean, uh, Stacy. Stacy's a good-looking woman. I don't know what to say. Um, oh, <laughs> but no, we, we, I mean, I got it, and then I've been... Uh, I've been coughing and I can't laugh. And if you've been around me long enough and I've been on the show, I like to laugh. I laugh a lot. And every time I laugh right now, I try not to choke to death. Yeah. So these batches of episodes, if you hear like a black bear coughing in the corner, that's Jake Winkler. But can you at least tell us what, okay, see, that was, that was not even on cue. What in the world? Hey, so what flavor are we working with? Like we will judge you by your flavor. What what we got? Uh, It's, it's like honey lemon. Okay. Very good. If you guys. Accepted. For a guy that's had a lot of uh, throat problems in his life, if you need a little bit of reprieve from your throat issues, if you need some soothing, it's honey and lemon. That's the way to go. But you sound I guess good, by the way. Thank lately. you. I appreciate yeah. it. Just lately, though, just well, not yeah. like normally. It's been a while since I've talked to you. It has been a while, and I know we record these a little bit out of out of whack. But um, just as a quick aside, things obviously in 2022 or 2023 got kind of squirrely there for a little bit. Yeah. You know, I was planning to have one surgery and it not be botched and it was botched. So I had to have that second surgery and the voice is not where I want it to be, but I, I don't have anxiety coming in here about being able to perform anymore because for those of you that don't realize we record a bunch of these at once because, you know, we don't come in here every week to record and I wouldn't be worried about making sure to honor God with what I was going to say. It was like, how many lozenges am I going to have to take? Which by the way is not good for your voice. I found out yeah. it makes you feel good, but the menthol is deleterious for your voice, which is not a great thing. But, um, just thank you to, to you three around the table. Cause I know you guys and your, your communities and your Sunday schools were, were praying for this. And I know the guys in the audience were praying for this. Again, it's not a finished product. There's a lot of tension in different areas of my phonation that still need to be figured out and loosened up and all this stuff. But to, to be where I'm at now, especially after that first surgery, when I couldn't talk louder than this and my wife and I are having tangible conversations about, is this it for undaunted? Cause if I can't talk, there is no undaunted. What does that look like? Do I become a writer? Do I become, you know, UPS driver? Like what thing can you, where can you make the most money without talking like that? Those were some of the, the things that we were dealing with at the time. So Thank you for saying that, and thank you, everybody, for all the prayers and stuff like that. But enough of that sappy prayer garbage. Uh, Let's dig into Matthew 16. So, uh, again, with the world's smallest Bible, let's lead it off here. Caleb, read uh, verse or starting at verse 1 through verse 4. All right. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, 
when it, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So what version is yours? Is that NIV? NASB. NASB. Okay. Um, so again, just writing the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is the ESV uh, title, is that they demand a sign. Again, I love when people demand things of Christ. We got Peter doing the same thing. Don't worry, we'll talk more about him. It's just always funny to me. It's always funny to when people demand things. But the thing I wanted to talk about here is it's clear that they didn't have a lack of evidence problem. They had a lack of recognition problem. The signs were all around them. And I'm reminded of the guy who we can't name anymore, but Ravi Zacharias pointed this out. When people are like, you know, I just need a sign. You know, when you, you ask the Frank Turk question, like, if Christianity were true, would you believe it? And then the next question is like, okay, what would you need to see to be able to believe it? And people are like, well, I just need to see a miracle. But then you could show them a million miracles and they're going to be like, a million and one. Get, give me another miracle. And the thing is, is like, Jesus is not a cosmic genie. And he's not just, you know, a wind-up toy to where it's like, oh, you want a miracle? Watch this. I have seven fingers on one hand. You know what I mean? Like, it's not one of those things. But I'm just wondering the corollary, what, what you guys think about this, the corollary in modernity for this type of action, where you see people, like you and I have talked about this, and we'll, we'll leave the context out because it's not appropriate for, for public consumption. But when you're depending on a sign so that someone will have faith, or you're depending on things to go a certain way, and you're hoping they go that way so someone will see you see, God is good and God is for you. I always get a little bit testy with that because it's like, what if it doesn't work out? Mm. Like this person's going to be like, I thought this God of yours was good and then I didn't get the job <coughs> or then I didn't do the thing or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You look deep in thought. Give it to us, Zach. No, Tell no. us the smart thing. I'm trying to understand your question. So you're at like, what is the modern miracle or what, what do no, you mean? No, like in modernity, how does this manifest? Because like back in this time, they're walking with Jesus and they're looking at him and they're like, hey, give us a sign. Mm -hmm. Right now, they had a bunch of reasons for doing that. But in modernity, yeah. we have people that will, outside the faith and inside the faith, try to test God by saying, hey, show me something. Like, show me something good. Show me something real. Well, I don't know about that specifically, but one thing I would say is, you know, there are lots of, um, I think there's a lot of evidence, probably more evidence today than we've ever had. I mean, aside from if you were there talking to, you know, a witness of Christ that saw this, I mean, now we have sort of scientific evidence that seems to say that, you know, everything came from nothing. We have all of this history, we have archeology, span et cetera. And it seems like you have people that might deal with one of those elements and maybe grapple with it and say, well, I don't know if I really believe that. But when you step back and look at holistically all of the evidence that we have that underscores this, it's really difficult uh, as an atheist or, you know, somebody along those lines to argue against it. But, mo you know, many people do. Probably the majority of people do. And so I'm just reminded of the passage where, you know, you have essentially Lazarus up in Abraham's bosom and you have the guy that's essentially in Hades and, you know, he says you know, send somebody to my brother so they have a sign. And, and he basically says, look, they have the prophets, you know, uh, that, that won't convince him. I, I, to me, the modern equivalent of this seems like it's, you know, the no true Scotsman ar argument that you will hear. Like somebody will purport that there's like, there's this certain way that we should be doing things. And I think you hear a lot of it with like, you know, people who talk about wanting to uh, move towards communism or socialism. And then you highlight like, well, well, look at this problem here and look at this problem here and look at this problem here. And what well, that hasn't really been tried yet. 
that that wasn't real socialism. That was a real communism. Mm. And to me, if you're going to look at like the worldly equivalent of this, it's that there's a faithful movement and you can, you know, it's almost like I'm talking to this person and I'm trying to show the, no, here's, here's this evidence. Here's this, here's this thing. Here's another country that this didn't work. Here's how this power corrupted this individual. I can show you all of that, but you have not, it's like, okay, but none of this is going to be enough to convince you. Otherwise I can talk until I'm blue in the face. That's why, um, I think you actually said this in a previous podcast and I've started doing this and it's like, okay, is there anything I can say? Like if I had evidence that could convince you otherwise, would you, would you want to hear it? And would you be receptive to changing your mind? Because if the answer to that is no, then you're wasting your breath. Yeah, and the, the inverse of that is what I, what I typically do when someone says something that is factually inaccurate as, as opposed to me bludgeoning them to death with true things. I will say, hey, if you were wrong about that, would you want me to tell you? Like, if you were wrong about that, would you want to know? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and their response will give you your answer. Because right. if they're like, well, yeah, I guess, you know, if I said something that was factually inaccurate, I would want to be able to speak correctly. That's a great, that's fertile soil. Yeah. But if they're mm-hmm. like, Ugh, I'm not wrong. Like, why would you even say that? It's so judgmental. Well, that's, uh, you already kind of mentioned it. What I had written down was uh, that they didn't lack evidence. They lacked honesty and humility. Oh yeah, for sure. Meaning that, you know, they knew they had already heard of every single miracle he had ever done. Right. They knew about them all. They didn't care about that. You know, they were trying to corner him again, you know? So, I mean, and I think I actually feel like the modern equivalent is actually the same. I mean, I don't know that there's any one thing that people are saying, you know, we all agree and this is what we would need to see. But at the end of the day, it, it probably is show me something yeah. like that I can see with my own eyes. Right. But even when something happens that you could call a miracle, you could call God's blessing or whatever, it's explained away. I read a quote from Dallas Willard as I was researching this chapter and I really like it. It was uh, perhaps we did not hear the voice of God because we do not expect to hear it. Then again, perhaps we do not expect it because we know that we fully intend to run our own lives on our own and have never seriously considered anything else. Like I'm over here, you know, you're looking for signs. You're looking for God to speak to you. He probably is, but you have no intention of hearing it because I'm going to do it on my own. Well, that's like when people respond to that question, like, what would you need to see to believe? And, you know, I even, I think Justin Barley asked him, but I can't remember who, but like, what if God wrote in the sky in clouds, like, Hey John, it's me. Like, believe in me, that type of thing. Well, mm-hmm. the person's response was, well, I would think that I had had a mental break. Like right. my, my brain was broken. It's like, so what you're saying is there's nothing that could convince you. Right. And then that bleeds into the whole <clears throat> sovereignty of God, God giving you faith and giving you understanding, which we'll get to, but I don't want to belabor that because in Matthew 15, we front loaded and basically talked about the beginning of the whole chapter, but I feel like there's a lot of meat at the end of 16. So let's keep this going. But before we do that, I did want to remind you guys that we now have a forging table starter set through Crossway. That is that stack of books at the end of the table. A lot of you guys are starting your own forging table. I want to make sure that you have the resources that you need. So we partnered up with Crossway to give you a five book set to help you with that. The new ESV Men's Study Bible, the Book of Romans Scripture Journal Study Edition, New Morning Mercies, which is by Paul David Tripp, which I think, who who did that at this table? Uh, Caleb, you've done that before, so a great devotional. The Beauty and Power of Biblical Exposition by Douglas O'Donnell kind of explains the different types of writings, the different things that are included in the Bible, and then Family Shepherds by the one and only Bodhi Bauckham. <clears throat> so, easy three-step process to get that. Go to crossway.org and create your own free Crossway Plus account. Make sure you register the account. Again, all this is in the show notes, guys. Step two, put all those books in your cart, and then at checkout, step three, 
put in this code BSSP50 to get 50% off that entire stack. You cannot get a better deal online for that stack of books. I guarantee it. No way of making it happen. You have to do it this way. That's Bravo Sierra Sierra Papa 50. That is what you put in at checkout. So guys, make sure that you go ahead and do that. Winkler, if you can hit the next section here, so Matthew 16, verses 5 through 12. Can I say something right quick? Do it. Just about, <laughs> it, it is a segue. It's the last part of it. But I learned, it said uh, at the end, a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah, which is talking about the death, the, the death, burial, resurrection. Yeah. Right? Which is like, it's coming. Yep. You know, they, don't, they may not even know what that meant. I'm not sure. Um, but he's saying like, oh, a sign's, a sign's coming. It's going to be so, a really big one. Yeah. That's another example of Jesus referring to one of the most hard to understand and hard to believe stories in all of the Old Testament. Right. So you're telling me a human being lived in the belly <laughs> of a whale for three days right. and then the whale just bleh, spit him out on the beach? I don't believe it. Right. Again, Jesus is referring to it again. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's see. 16.5. Yes, when sir. the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand, or how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So I'll let y'all discuss whatever portion you want. The one thing I want to talk about is obviously the, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's false teaching. Like that's basically what we're talking about. Again, there's a whole lot more that can be discussed about leaven and the ritualistic way that the bread was used and how it had to be prepared for the Old Testament and all that. Like we could get into that. Uh, I don't think we should do that now because we have so much more to, to go. But on, on 5 through 12, anything that y'all want to add to that? Yeah, I just want to read this. This is from Wearsby. Um, it just says, often in the ministry of Jesus, people misconstrued his words by interpreting them literally rather than spiritually. Uh, Nicodemus had thought that Jesus was talking about an actual physical birth. The Samaritan woman had thought he was referring to material water from the well. The Jewish crowd in the synagogue had thought Jesus was speaking about eating actual flesh and blood when he was describing a spiritual experience. So here the disciples thought Jesus was talking about making bread uh, with his comment about leaving. Um, this kind of highlights some things from the last episode for me, which were, you know, how do you think about spirituality in your everyday life? How does it manifest itself? What's, what's the impact of that? I think in, in the world today, it can be so physical and tangible. And, and, you know, when you leave a conversation like this and go into the real world, quote unquote, you know, it seems to me that Jesus put this first. Um, throughout sort of his everyday experience, and that's how he conveyed it. So what are some ways that, that you guys think about this, or do you think about this? And if you're talking with a strictly naturalist person, for instance, how do you convey the importance of something like this to them? I'm looking at y'all. <laughs> Say something smart. Do it. Three, two, one, go. <laughs> to clarify. Yeah. Um, I need clarification, too. Yeah. Maybe restate your question for me real quick. So importance of so when you think about spiritual matters it just seems to me that it's something that you can kind of skip over 
Um, not taking the time, for instance, uh, to read your Bible, to pray, to consider the state of what you have inside the heart, like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. and how that's going to manifest itself in your reality around you. If you think about some of the examples of things that come from, from spirituality, I would call it, it'd be things like suicide, murder, love, the way you treat your family. Um, so I guess what I'm kind of grappling with this is more of a question than anything else is as I go further and further down my walk, I spend more and more time thinking about this probably than I did previously. And, and given the fact that Jesus spent so much time putting this as his priority over whatever physical ailment he was dealing with tells me that I should be paying attention to it. And I think a lot of wisdom comes out of that. And I think eventually probably joy and rest in life in some sense, because you're kind of walking along the path. You're playing the game the way God designed it to be played. So I guess my question would be, again, is do you think about spiritual matters as a course of your everyday life? Mm. And if so, how does that manifest itself in your reality around you? Great question. So, I mean, I think as I, as I get older, you know, you, if you have a relationship with your parents, you hear about, they'll talk to you about how fast things go, right, right. in life. Yeah. I do feel like as I get older, the scripture that um, when he talks about your, our life is a vapor just becomes more real, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's obviously comes back to a worldview thing. And I know you're asking how it manifests in our life, but if I'm like, even if I'm talking to someone else, it's like, well, what do you, what's your worldview on what we are, you know, or is it, are we strictly material or is this like, is there something beyond it? Um, But you know, thinking about, I mean, I think just the, the way the world is now, it's hard not to think about spiritual things, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're, um, I mean, if you're walking with the Lord, it's, and, and even if it's something that you're just wrestling, wrestling with, like it's, it's all around us, you know? So I'm personally just the feeling like I'm living in a, uh, a battle of, you know, principalities is just becomes more real all the time. That's what I was going to so, say. Like when you pass that, that rambling, crazy person on the street, it's easy to just go to the other side of the street and be like, like glad I avoided that situation or something like that. But I can't get over the fact it's like this person is on, they're under attack, under attack at minimum, perhaps possessed at maximum. And it's like, man, what do you, what do you do with that? Because, you know, there's not a conservative policy Republican, you know, prescription or, or liberal law. There's nothing that could solve that problem. So whether you, you think, Hey, go up to them and give them a good talking to about pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, like a good conservative American could, mm-hmm. you, could do, it's not going to work. If you go around to them and say, Hey, look, we know, we know you have a housing problem. That's your main problem. So right. we're going to put you in housing and give you clean needles to shoot up with and all that. Mm-hmm. None of that, nothing in between is going to work, right? There's something way, way deeper that's, yeah, right. that's happening and yeah. you, you can't fight it with, you know, normal American human means, I guess. Well, I'm just thinking of a, a, recent word from our pastor too, talking about issues in the Middle East saying that there's, there is not a political solution to this spiritual problem. Right. Yeah. And it's that, yeah, it is just being faced with things that you're like, that's just, that's not, um, you know, some specific sin necessarily maybe in that person's life. That's just the the fallen world that we live in showing up on the side of the road. It's interesting to me how willing we are now to try and contextualize and provide nuance to situations that have none. I mean, you know, uh, the amount of times that I've heard people try and, you know, 
provide nuance on this situation with Hamas. It's one of Israel. the most annoying mm. words, and you used I, it twice. It's I, like when I, people I, say moist, and everyone's like, ew, yeah, gross. Okay. <laughs> but you're exactly right. Yeah. It's so it's like, bloody annoying. I, I'm, I, I mean, I literally sat down. I've sat down with different people, and I, I look at them like, I, I can't even believe that you are saying what you're saying. I mean, do you know what they did? This, this seems like so crystal clear and clear cut. Like, you know, you're trying to find some sort of gray area so that you can look what, like you have wisdom. And I am actually looking at you like, I, I actually thought you were smarter than this. Like, this is one of those things. It's clearly black and white. And, you know, you should be able to look at and go, this is truly, e- this is right. true evil. It's these third way people. Yeah. They try to find this mythical third way. And I try to be like, what's the middle ground on chopping off a little boy's penis? What's yeah. the middle ground? What's the, what's the the middle position on something like that? But whenever, I think last week I mentioned that I taught Sunday school, yeah. you know, uh, a week after the, the attacks, I spent a good amount of time describing in detail, not showing pictures or videos, but the atrocities that happened. And yeah. it was everything that I knew up to that point, including 40 babies that had been beheaded or burned alive, a pregnant woman that was killed and her baby was expelled from her body, died beside her, still attached to the umbilical cord. It's still hard for me to say that sentence every time I say it because it's so unbelievably infuriating. But the reason why I talked about that in my Sunday school is I said, look, within two or three weeks, there's going to be calls for peace, for ceasefire, for why is Israel being so mean? Look at all the civilians that they're killing. Oh, it's this both sides BS. And it's just like, that's going to happen. And it's like, I want you to remember this. And since then, we learned about, oh, they, they had a family of four and they put these families on their knees, had them face each other, and then they tortured them. They cut off fingers, ripped out eyeballs, cut off feet, brutally raped the mother in front of the, the people. And then they shot them all in the back of the head. And then they ate their Shabbat dinner, right? They sat there with the mutilated, murdered bodies, and then they, they had dinner before they moved on to the next house. There were people that took the time to preheat the oven before they put the baby in it to cook it alive, okay? But that, that's one of those things, like these nuanced people, mm-hmm. these let's just try to think. It's like, no, you're trying to find this mythical third way that does not exist, and we just get so uncomfortable with calling a spade a spade. It's, I don't get it. Especially whenever there's one side that's not interested in any sort of third way whatsoever. Right. Oh, we need a two-state solution. Who are the two states exactly? <laughs> One state says, yeah, sure, two states. The other state says, no, we don't want your state to exist. Right. You don't negotiate. Like I know, Zach, you've done a lot of high-level negotiation and training and stuff like that. If you don't have two parties that actually want to get a deal done, you can't strike a deal. Like just think about it in a business context. This group wants to buy this company for X amount. The other group will not sell the company. Like it there's no negotiating price. Like, why are we haggling about price? This group's not going to sell. Not they don't want to sell. They want to be wooed. It's that it's not possible. Yeah. The, the question would just be, why are you here? You know, what, what caused you to come to the table? And then you'd have to ferret that out. If that was the case, then yeah, there's no, there's no sense in talking. I, I know from like the FBI negotiator standpoint, you know, there's always some reason why things are occurring. But what, I think when real evil comes in that form and fashion, there's no negotiating it's and it's just difficult for me to even hear those things it's i'm so thankful the bible says that you can have righteous anger because that's all i can express you know you're not supposed to have that in many cases but in that case it just pisses me off to the point that it's hard to articulate anything yeah i remember i actually asked my pastor terry fakes and i asked him i was like okay like right after the incident happened i was like okay help me help me help me kind of figure out 
like where my line needs to be because I know where, where I'm thinking is like, I think Gaza could just be one large parking lot. And that's kind of where I like, that was my immediate emotional reaction. And I'm also going, but that's probably not a godly reaction that I'm thinking in my head. So help me kind of figure this out. And then he just said, yeah, we'll talk about that on Sunday. Uh, and then, uh, you know, my daughter's had a horse riding competition. And right. Was- <laughs> well, and, and here's the thing. And, and we got to move on. This is yeah. my fault because we keep getting off onto I, this is this is good stuff. But I do want to make sure we, we give some reverence to the text. But by saying that you agree. And again, guys, this is coming out, you know, months after we record it. There could be other countries that get involved right now. There could be any number of things. So we're just taking, let's just look at the initial, the, the initial attack. You can support Israel defending themselves and counterattacking and trying to wipe, wipe Hamas out. But if you hear about an actual atrocity committed by an Israeli soldier, that doesn't mean that you just rotely say, yeah, yeah, I support that because of what Hamas did. No, you, you, don't, you don't go atrocity for atrocity. That, that, that's not how this game works. Right. But there's one side that is actively targeting civilians for murder and slaughter and the other side that is bending over backwards to take pauses to allow humanitarian aid to people that hate them, that are literally guarding the pathway for these people to get out of a particular area of their own BS country. So the, the, these are not equivalent sides, but we, we got to move on and talk about the next well, section. I, I here. Do want to, just one thing. Yeah, else. go ahead. I think the most difficult thing for me is it's not a geographic thing so much as a people group thing, right? It's Hamas. I mean, there's a lot of, I'm sure there's good people in Gaza that are trapped, you know? So as our world continues to get more complex, we just have to deal with things that we never had to contend with before. And it's, it's complicated. All right, let's get into Peter being a moron. So whoever wants to read uh, verses 13 through 20, let's hit it. I got it. Okay. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is, he- who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. A lot here, but let's talk just quickly about Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles north of Galilee. This is like the center of Baal worship. This is an incredibly pagan city where where this was going down. But then we go down to, you know, when Christ says, but who do you say that I am? He's, he's talking to all of them all the apostles. And then Peter pipes up as like the voice of the apostles. And so this is where, um, Peter gets his new name. So I want to get into that because I have some Catholic questions, uh, Jake here in a second, but verse 17, this is like, like a wet dream verse for Calvinists. This is like their favorite thing in the entire world. They're like, Oh yeah, you don't think that Calvinism is true. Well, suck on this one because verse 17 and Jesus answered them, blessed are you Simon Barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So this is an argument against the people that are like, wait a minute, you didn't study your way to that revelation. Mm -hmm. You didn't listen to the right Christian apologist podcast. You didn't figure this out. It's like it was revealed to you in your modernity 
as it's revealed to a child. I remember recently Matt Chandler had a sermon where he's like, some of you are like double PhD people. You had to spend two years digging into the historicity of the Bible and how we got the, the scripture and the translations and the, and all that stuff. And then my wife, she became a Christian when she was five <laughs> and God revealed himself to her when yeah. she was five. Yeah. And that five-year-old could barely make it through the day without soiling their britches, but they believed in the same way the double PhD does, who's using all their faculties. But basically, you know, they're, you know, this is not flesh and blood. This wasn't your brain, right? This wasn't any part or any part of you that was doing this. And so, yeah, shout out to the Calvinists. I get what you're saying. It is literally right there. And I think it means what it means. It means what it says right there. What do you think? You don't want to talk about it? No, we can talk about it. We can certainly talk about it, but it gets me back to that confusion of you got sovereignty and you got free will and how in the world do those things coalesce and, and combine and super duper smart people say they don't know how. So I'm going to pretend like they're right because it's easier. What do you think? I, mean, I agree. You put me on my heels I mean, and then you don't have anything to say. Come on. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. It's so tough to reconcile the, those two. I mean, if, if you truly do have free will and can make the decisions on your own, I mean, I always used to say like, you know, God has a plan for everybody, right? But at the same time, you know, I don't know that God ever said I, this person is meant to be a crackhead and they're going to be addicted to drugs. And, you know, uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the truth. Um, I, it, so to me, it's always one of those things where I go, okay, well, we have this free will and God has a plan. And I think there's an, I mean, I've always said, well, I think there's a beginning point and there's an end point, And those are the two concrete things. And then beyond that, there's a branching decision tree where we're making decisions and God knows everything that will happen if we go down certain paths. He knows it. It's like, but there are these points in time, you know, to your point uh, uh, on the previous podcast, like, you know, when you pray for humility, does he give you, does he give you humility or does he give you the opportunity to be in a position where you could show it? you pray for courage, do you get the opportunity to show courage or does he just magically endow you with it? So I actually think it's more of a, no, he will put us in situations to fail or to test our faith. And in those tests, we either succeed or we fall short. And uh, the more times that we succeed, the, the more times we're walking down that path with Christ. That's always the way I've looked at it. And I don't know that, I mean, but that's the gospel of Jake Winkler, I think. I don't think it's necessarily correct. Well, every time I look across the table, I see Zach curling up the edges of his mouth when he has something really, really smart <laughs> to say. Like, no, it happens, and it's usually the exact <laughs> opposite of what I've said. So just hit us with it. Let's I, go, I Zach. I, I don't have anything. We've talked about this yeah, ad nauseum with so many people, and I think I'm where you started off. I, I think they're both true, and I, th I think they both um, coexist. I just think by definition they, they do. I think what's so difficult for me is I know so many people that are troubled by the predestination thing and, and creating people that are predestined for hell. And I, I get really sad about that. I mean, I, I have to contend with it, you know, with family members and I don't know, I don't know how to, how to, you know, just solve that by saying something. I mean, unfortunately God does know and, and God did create you and ultimately you can, you can understand where <coughs> history and the future are going, but he, he, he had to make a decision to have free will in order to have something that could love him by definition. Right. And see, that's the problem that I run into as well is when I ask Calvinists, why do you have kids? They're like, cause the Bible says we're supposed to. I was like, okay, 
but you are literally creating things that might be destined, elected for hell. Right. They don't like that question very much. Mm. That's why I ask it. It's a good one. But well, they were, pre- they were predestined one. to create them, though. <laughs> see, and the, see, that's the yeah. thing that you get into is, yeah. it, and it's again, we've I've watched hours long debates on this exact subject, and nobody gets to the end having changed their mind. It's it's just it is a rough one for me because like you mentioned Winkler, you mentioned yeah. uh, you know this thing with Hamas and all that, yeah. and then people are pointing to Old Testament prophecies and they're yeah. explaining how it's like blah blah blah, and I'm like. Dad, gummit! I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Like they barely understand what right. that what a name is, not even how to spell their own. And it's just like, crap! Did I have yeah. them at the exact wrong time? They're not going to have a chance to accept. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I I think the other thing with the predestination idea, the entire concept of predestination, I I have I have severe heartburn over it because I'm going okay. There's this entire call to discipleship. And our mission and what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. And if God has already made up his mind on everybody, then what is the point of discipleship? What is the point of missionary work? Correct. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. I've, they're, they're already going where they're going despite anything I say, do, you know, and, and live out literally what Christ tells us to do. Go out and make more disciples. And we're just basically, what, fruit, is this a fruitless endeavor? And that's why I always, I always have had heartburn over predestination. It's like, well, then, then literally nothing we do matters. Well, Caleb, in the cult your family used to be in, what did y'all teach? Like, what was, <laughs> shout Small out to anyone ones. that's been listening <laughs> to this for a while. Uh, we don't have time for that. Okay. But Fair I enough. do, I do have a thought though. Let's go. So I've, I mean, this was something I used to think about a lot and I've kind of decided that this is just falls under the category of like his ways are higher than mine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but I do find it interesting in, in from a discipleship ship standpoint, like you mm-hmm. just mentioned, um, the, the question in, in this verse, that's the most important is who do you say I am? Right. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's the thing that I find it kind of funny that it's in that same little section there is that it's like, okay, let's set that aside. Who do you say I am? You know, and that's really what, like, I have, I have two sisters that are, that are far from the Lord right now. And that's what I talk to them about. It's like, I don't care what problems you have with church or Christians or me or whoever, who do you think Jesus is? Let's just start there. You know? So, I mean, that, that to me is the thing that stands out the most in this passage. Well, that also helps when someone's like, what about the dinosaurs? It's like, okay, we can talk about dinosaurs. What about young earth people? We can certainly talk about them, but we need to figure out who Jesus is to you. Like, do you believe that his death on the cross somehow counted for you? Like, that's the starting point. That's, that's, that's the point that the unhitched people like an Andy Stanley, like what, if he had made the point, like, look, we need to start with this, but we don't unhitch it from the old Testament because without the old Testament, we don't even know what we're looking at type of a thing. That's where I think that they were going. Um, just real quickly on, cause I did the world's worst segue. Cause it's not this section where Peter is an idiot. It's the next one, but this is the section in verse 18 where it says, and I tell you, you are Peter. So he gives him his new name. So he's no longer Simon. He's Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Of all the study for getting ready for today's recording, that one scripture had more notes to it about what did they mean by rock and what was the verb tense and what was the everything about rock. <clears throat> but one of the things I was talked about here is like when people say Peter was the first Pope, yeah. Catholics are like, no, Peter was the first Pope. And when I talk to Catholics today, they're like, no, there's a direct line yeah. from Pope Francis all the way back to St. Peter. Right. And it's like, 
So you're telling me no one along the way wasn't supposed to be the Pope? Like they've gotten it right, that little, the dudes in the funny hats and stupid shoes, like they've always picked the right guy? So help me a little bit with your Catholic experience here. <laughs> so the, the way that they would, they will say that Peter was the first Pope and that there is this direct line. Uh, but if you were going to say, oh, they've absolutely batted a thousand, uh, no, they have not. Um, you know, you know, look, there's been, there's been some popes throughout history that I think have been, you know, great men and lived a godly life and, and are very res- respectable and someone that I would say could, you could even emulate them and, and use them as a good example. However, you know, I, there's, there's popes throughout history that, you know, I, I would say that, uh, like I, there was one that this is back in the dark ages, but one that got upset that he was not elected Pope and a different one was actually elected Pope. And after that Pope died, this guy that lost, I can't remember which Pope it was, but he lost and he decided that when he won and he became, when he was elected Pope, he actually went back and said, and put the previous Pope on trial, brought his actual corpse up and excommunicated him from the church. I don't know that I would say, well, from Peter to that guy, uh, perfect. Or the, the, uh, the Medici Pope, Mm. uh, Pope Leo, uh, go read about him. Uh, what he was doing at the Vatican, uh, definitely some things that I would say was not Christ-like behavior. Uh, so, or the Borgia Pope, you could do the same thing with them. There's definitely been some ones that I, I would actually probably throw Pope Francis in there right now. I mean, you're, you're, you're saying some things that I think are heretical. And what's interesting is I still have a whole lot of family members who are Catholic right now. I've never heard them speak about the Pope the way that they speak about Pope Francis. So there is this realization that I think is starting to happen that, okay, this is a person, but they're clearly a person and they're flawed like a person. So, um, but at the same time, you know, Peter was himself flawed as we're about to find out in the next couple of verses here, but yeah, hopefully that provides some clarification. What does, what does direct line mean? I mean, there was a human person. Think of it, think of it like sequentially. So it's, it's kind of funny. So think of it in the same way, like there's the Shia and the Sunni Muslims, right? So the, uh, Sunni Muslims actually have like they have like their version of a pope where they are electing them over and over and over again. And they would say, well, their first was Muhammad. And then they were elected after that. Whereas the Shia actually look at it and say it's Muhammad. And then his, it's more of a royalty position. And they are basically taking bloodline relatives of Muhammad. So they both trace it back to Muhammad, but one was a bloodline relative and the other one is elected. The Catholics are yeah, like they, a general. It was right, one of his generals. Right. And the Catholics are electing theirs just like the Sunnis would. So they're basically, it's, it's kind of like saying each one of our presidents can be traced back to George Washington. That's you, the extent of it. And this is my ignorance, but are you saying that there's an element of bloodline to Pope election? No, no, there's not, not. bloodline, okay. but so it's just a person. God ordainment yeah. of the person selected yeah. it's and chosen, that there's no accidental Pope. It's indefensible. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, we can get into that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, you, you can't get into that. So I, I, you know, it's a, it's a good discussion for a different day, but not necessarily here. But I did want to just kind of put that out there so we all kind of understand. Um, and then at the end, of course, 
Christ tells them, don't tell anyone. We don't want this to turn into a political movement. Like, let's keep, you know, the important things, the important things. But when we get to verse 21, this next section, this is where Matthew shifts his focus away from, you know, the ministry in Galilee to the beginning of Jesus's journey to Jerusalem, where he will eventually, you know, find his fate. And so uh, somebody please read at 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. A lot of things to talk about here. Number one, if you read it like a robot, you get no personality from Jesus. Number two, there is not a way to read this where it sounds nice, right? And sounds uplifting and any of those types of things. The only way that you can read this is that he is getting after Peter. Like he is coach into a day's grabbing you by your face mask. (laughs) This is that moment. But the interesting thing here is, I, you know, I just kind of giggle because I see a lot of myself and Peter and it's like, you know, there's always cart before the horse. There's always mouth before thinking. There's always those types of things. But in this exact moment, Peter should have taken the hint and it was like he was incapable of doing so. And Jesus had to rebuke Peter the entire way from the moment he called him until the Garden of Gethsemane. He had to rebuke Peter for this exact stuff because if we, you know, fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter still doesn't get it. He thinks that this is a political thing that they're about to win. He thinks Jesus is a conquering hero. He doesn't think he's going to die. And, you know, morons will say that whenever Jesus rebuked Peter in the garden for using the sword to cut off the Roman soldiers, the centurion's uh, ear or whatever, that that was him repudiating any type of violence. And it's like, no, he was getting in Peter's butt because he's like, bro, you keep getting in the way like, I don't want to do this. You saw me, you know, you know, dripping, sweating blood. You know, I don't want to do this, but this is the way. Can you please get out of the way? So this is kind of that first bit of kindling towards that fire that Jesus has to just keep going this entire way. If I'm not mistaken, too, the, the previous verse there was the first time that Christ, this is the first time the church is mentioned. So he, he kind of said. Yeah, there's, it's one of two places 18. where it's used. So Matthew 18, 17 is the other. Right where the word church is actually used. So he was, he was, and I think this says, and it was probably within sight of Caesar's temple that Jesus announced a surprise. He would not yet establish his kingdom, but he would build his church. And so Peter's mindset is certainly kind of kingdom mindset. We're going to fight against, you know, the Romans and all that, but it's really a church mindset. He's trying to get them dialed into. Other thoughts here on, on this section here, because again, it's, it's a very famous uh, bit of scripture. But, you know, it's kind of hard for some people to understand. I think some people try to ignore it because Jesus sounds so mean pants during I, it. I think, it's, I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think everybody would probably say that Peter among the disciples is probably the leader. And yet he seems like in terms of like the flaws in character and the times that, you know, he gets repudiated. I mean, it's not like he's, you know, John and James. I mean, Jesus is, you don't hear him giving a butt chew into John and James very, you know, very much. I mean, it's, it's Peter's the one that gets called out frequently in the Bible, you know, like he's the, he's the difficult child. And I keep having to minister to him and tell him like, no, this is not the right way, except I'm going to go ahead and make you the leader of the church, which is so fascinating to me. Um, because you know, but 
I think when you look at him as an example, I mean, Peter, Peter's bold. Peter's very bold. Uh, he confesses and wants forgiveness of sin and he, he does those things. But at the same time, he is a constant reminder of our failures as well, where it's, here's my plan and that should supersede God's plan. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's like, well, I, I don't want you to die. So you can't. And I'm going to stop it. And it's like, no, you won't. And no, you shouldn't because this is God's plan. He's also the one that gets off the boat and tries to walk on the water and confesses that Christ is Lord. And yep. so it seems like the, the heart position of Peter is he's attempting to be in the right place. You know, he's, he's all in, even if he's going in the wrong direction, which just like the Lord said, you know, David is a, a man after my heart. Well, Peter seems like a guy that would, his life verse, if it were a verse, would be like, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. Like, that just seems like there's something that Amen. he would really enjoy. <laughs> but like, he, he he's not a doer, he's, he's an overdoer. And it's right. just like, it seems like he's constantly doing that, but he's constantly running into these mistakes. Well, I think the other thing that's interesting with Peter, and I think this speaks to his humility a little bit. He is, I mean, it's clear he's the leader of the disciples, but Peter never rises above any of the other disciples. Like he's not over them and saying, well, you know, like after Jesus dies and, and is resurrected and ascends into heaven, Peter is not going like, here's how we're going to do things, guys. It's nope. He's a leader. He's guiding them. But it's very clear to me that he's not trying to rise above any of them and put himself first and say, I am in charge, which again, kind of makes the Catholic Pope thing kind of laughable a little bit. Uh, but uh, the 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 idea that leadership is is he's he's trying to be a first among equals and not trying to get above them and which would create that prideful uh, that pride that can kind of sometimes come from being a leader. Uh, I think it is a good mark of his humility as that leader, especially when your leader is going to <clears throat> his death. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a humbling situation. Yeah, I mean, you got to love him, you know, I mean, he's emotional, he's passionate. He's yeah. like, he's the guy that, you know, is up and everybody else is sitting on the bench and he's like, what the heck, yeah. you know? Um, I mean, I, so it, I'll say that, but then also I was going to mention that it, one of the notes I had written from uh, a little bit earlier was that he had declared his person, but now he has to declare his work. And he, he was just start Jesus. I mean, was just getting into, okay, this is going to happen, you know, and it's, and it's Peter obviously loving him and thinking he's loving him and doing good, saying, no, Peter, like this is, it's time. This is going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. And it's, and it's Satan that's telling you to stop this. You well, know, so. and, and that arrogance that can come, I mean, I, again, this is something I wrote. Arrogance, cockiness, and self-sufficiency. This idea that my plan supersedes God's plan. Arrogance, cockiness, and self-sufficiency are all counterfeits of confidence. Confidence is the recognition of what God has given us to do and that we can do it with his strength. So if God has given you a plan and you are looking for his guidance, you can have confidence in what you're doing. But if you're just trying to follow your own path and you say, well, I should be confident in what I'm doing because I got this. Well, and Jesus gives them a hint, Mm -hmm. you know, at the end of verse 23, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Mm -hmm. It's like, dude, like, I love your passion. Mm -hmm. I need it. He doesn't need it, but you know what I mean? Like he <laughs> called him because of his passion, right? He didn't call Peter in spite of his passion. But the thing is, is like, you know, you could have a race car and put the wrong fuel in it and it's going to be a problem, right? You can have a race car with the right fuel in it and point it in the wrong direction. And you've now got a problem, right? And so I think, you know, obviously he's, he's trying to help him, 
And this is another thing, like this doesn't mean that every time you rebuke somebody, it's got to be in the cutest tone and wait until you're not angry and then, you know, talk about it with your spouse and then you can approach the kid. And then that's not the way that it always needs to be. This was immediate aggressive rebuke. Now, this is not licensed to only rebuke in that way, but to anyone that's, you know, read these 17 different parenting books or all these other different relational or counseling books and everything is like, oh, you got to wait till you're calm and you got blah, blah. Sometimes you rebuke in the moment and that's exactly what's needed and that's what's necessary. So let's close out uh, Matthew 16 with reading of 24 through 28. Zach, hit it. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. So versus time, (laughs) you don't think we have enough time, (laughs) but let's do our best here in our, in our last little bit (coughs) Verses 24 and 25 don't make sense at all. If you don't believe the gospel, we'll read them again. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself not live his best life, not find his truth, not whatever, but to deny himself and to take up his cross and follow me. Again, that's alluding to the crucifixion, to something that was foretold in the Old Testament before crucifixion was even you know, decided upon yet. It alludes to the fact that Jesus was going to have trouble carrying his own cross after his flogging and scourging. So it's pointing to all that. And then verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. That doesn't make any sense. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That doesn't make any sense unless you have the gospel, which goes back to what was it? Verse 17 where it's, you know, you're trying to figure out like, okay, was this, was this revelatory because it was given to me as a gift or did I find myself there? Like the, the, there's all that. We're not going to reopen that. We already put a bandaid on it, but this, this is just so interesting to me because as a Christian, cause I've been a Christian since high school, I can read through this verse and it, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's what it says. Yeah. It's no big deal. But if you're reading this for the first time, yeah, Right. And you're not a believer. You're like, what? You, you have to be. I try to look through the lens of a non-believer and be like, how would they read this? Because it's got to seem completely anathema to like everything they've ever operated on. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think I think it's the spirit, obviously, that, that gives you that perspective. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, if you don't if you don't have the Holy Spirit and you read that, not only will you not understand it, but you can also I, I would think it would make perfect sense just to read it in a bad way. Right. Right. Meaning like deny myself like what is that you know no like i'm supposed to just not take care of myself and not do you know do anything that the world would look at as good for myself well that's not it but i mean i and we see obviously this is the opposite of everything that's described in 24 through 28 is like the new religion and mm-hmm. I, I realize it's not new right, but right it seems like it you know i mean it's the virtuous thing is to do the opposite of this Right. So and it really goes count- take care of yourself. And it goes counter to every other world religion that's ever, except for, you know, right. But what is it where it's Buddhism, where you try to find this yeah, nothingness yeah. and, you know, this nirvana you know, or whatever. So you try to find <laughs> where you're not doing anything. Um, right. But yeah, that like nothing else, everything was about conquering mm-hmm. and overcoming. And like none of this language would have made sense. And that's the, the dichotomy of Jesus to where, again, he's not all lying. 
but he, he is lamb and you don't have lion without lamb. You don't have lamb without lion. And certainly when you get into this, it's being able to understand that tension. We've talked so much about that tension, even in this episode of sovereignty and free will, but there's also tension here between like caring enough for oneself that you honor God by how you care for yourself, but then also not caring about yourself so much that you're willing to deny him in order to cater to yourself. Meeking yourself. Sure. Yeah. That's how I think about it. I think that the, uh, one of the things that I took from this whole section was the, how often I think we can allow our circumstances to dictate our faithfulness. You know, we, we have some bad things happen to us and then suddenly God is against us or, you know, the, um, you know, I think the, the fact is that no one has failed so many times in their life that God still cannot use them for his purposes. Again, going back to that, have confidence that if you have that right relationship with God, if you are going to him consistently, that he will help you guide your path, that he will put you on his purpose and, and you will be able to walk with him, but you have to be consistent in that relationship. Do not allow the circumstances of your own life the mess that you probably made of it yourself, sorry, Calvinists, and maybe sorry, Joby, too, but the, um, the mess you've made of your own life is not God's fault. Don't let that circumstance, when you are in that scenario, you have to turn to God. I guess my, my, I'm always curious, like, how often and when do you decide to turn to God? And, and I mean, for me, it's like, you know, is it when it's really bad or, you know, when I have a big decision to make? You know, how often is it like, okay, you know, I had a disciplinary problem with my kid. Should I be praying before that? How do I handle this? You know, sometimes even the most mundane and and easy decisions that you should be making in your everyday life, we may be making them outside of God's will and trying to be a little bit more consistent. You asked in the last episode, I hear from God. It's because I consistently am going to him. And it's like, no, I know when he's talking to me. And it's like, and sometimes he says nothing. And it's like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to try and make a decision on my own here. Well, I would agree with what Matt Chandler said when he went into Elevation Church and burned Stephen Furtick's church down around him. But he's like, you're not David. When you read about David, you're not David. You didn't kill Goliath. You know, your boss at work is not Goliath. Okay, like, let's stop with that. But I do think it is important to go back to the point you were just making, Jake, about, well, can God use me? Yes, absolutely. he used David. Now, people, they love to think of themselves as David whenever he's slaying Goliath, right? And there's a great TikTok account of this, this Israeli guy that like shows how people used to use whips and rocks. Because I'm like, how are you going to use like a slingshot to kill like a giant? But how they like spin their entire body around, it's like this big thing. It's like, oh, it, it's perfect. It's like Randy Johnson throwing a baseball at a bird. Like that's basically how this worked out. But I think about David the murderer. Yeah. David the rapist, yeah. potentially. Mm-hmm. Calling Bathsheba to his chambers, she doesn't really have an option of not doing what he wants her to do and probably surviving. And to ensure that his deeds aren't found out, at least to his knowledge, he kills her husband, like not with his own hand, but basically he does it kind of in the mafia way where he puts him in a situation where there was no way where Uriah was going to make yeah. it out. That's what I think about. So when I start feeling down in the dumps and I can't believe and I'm so stupid and blah, blah, mm-hmm. I'm like, he used David. And he's in the line of David, right? Like this depravity and this sin provided the continuation of the line to get to the king, the yeah. real king. That's yeah. what I think about. I like thinking about Jonah too. 
I mean, in that same way, Jonah gets told, go to Nineveh, go to Nineveh. And it's like, I am not going to Nineveh. I am not doing that. And then, yeah. Uh, and then I'm going the opposite way of going to Nineveh. And then, okay, well then I will put you in the belly of a whale and I will spit you out on the shores of Nineveh. You, again, you may not think you can be used for his plan, but sometimes and in a lot of ways, and I think the example of David is like, yes, he can still use you no matter what you've done. In the example of Jonah, it's like, you may be going, I am not following you. You may be actively working against his plan. And guess what? It's fruitless. You're going to end up a part of his plan. Yeah. One thing I like about Frank Turek, you listen to some of his stuff when he's going back and forth with these college campus kids that are asking all these questions. And one that'll come up a lot is, well, I had whatever circumstance in my life, you know, blow up and now I don't believe in God. And he's like, well, (laughs) your personal circumstances don't dictate God's existence. That's why this faith is great because it's evidence-based. You know, for me, I didn't come to faith from like a scientific evidence perspective per se. It was, it was other personal circumstances. But then once I was exposed to all that information, it was like, wow, this is crazy. Uh, And now anytime there's a storm, you just go back to that rock that there's just overwhelming evidence that this is the case. And so from that perspective, then once you get to Christ and you realize that it's real and you realize that you have the ability to pray to the creator of the universe and read his word, then absolutely you should be praying and going to it every day. You know, I think for me, that's kind of the big thing. So for anybody out there that does feel like you're going through something that causes your faith to waver, make sure that you're looking at your evidence. Well, there's more to say, but I think that's a great place to leave it. So guys, we are going to be back here next Sunday and we're going to dig into Matthew 17. So make sure you're read up through there. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got links to the stuff I talked about earlier, the forging table starter set through Crossway. All the stuff is right there in the show notes and also a link to our donation page. Quick thank you to all the donors, the people that support us financially. We can't pull off what we pull off without you guys. Everything we do costs money. That's just the way the world is. But we need more guys like you to come on board to support us financially so that we can increase what we're doing to equipment around the globe to push back darkness. So that link is there as well. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Perfect. Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>